Well, hey everyone, it's great to be with you today. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to John chapter four? And and this week, we're gonna continue our series that we've called The Amazing Stories of Jesus, where through these summer months, we're looking at these different stories, these different encounters that Jesus has with all sorts of people from different walks of life. Some are sick and in need of healing. Some are rich, some are educated, some are outcasts. And today we're gonna look at a very well-known section of scripture, a story that's often referred to as the woman at the well. It's John chapter four. And so as you turn there, I'll just mention this. I feel indebted to a few different thought leaders and scholars who've just been tremendously helpful to me in the preparation of this message. Namely, Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author, theologian from New York City. And then also Daryl Johnson, who's from right here in our city in Vancouver, a pastor, professor at Regent College. Okay, John chapter four, starting in verse one. If you have a Bible, you can read along with me. Here's what it says. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water from. This well is deep. Where are you gonna get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and have to come, keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountaintop nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Then the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Okay, let's pray together and then we'll unpack these great verses together. Lord Jesus, we recognize you are the same Jesus that encountered this woman at the well. And as we look in this story, as we dig deep into, into what you say to her, into this encounter that you have with this woman, I pray that it would come alive to us and that you would speak to us, that we would hear the message that you want us to hear today, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
Well, as one scholar noted, I think the theme of this whole passage can be summed up in the phrase, Jesus, the thirst quencher. And there's so much in this passage that we're gonna unpack and explore together today. But, but right off the top, one thing that occurred to me that I realized in my study this week, maybe for the first time, is that this event that we read about in John chapter four of the woman at the well, this is not the first life transforming experience to happen to a woman at a well throughout scripture. There's at least three other pretty significant moments that took place at a well in, in the Old Testament. First, it was, it was at a well where a servant of Abraham, the father of Israel, found a bride for his son Isaac, found Rebekah, who had become Isaac's wife. And then it was at a well where Isaac and Rebekah's son Jacob found his bride. And then Moses, the one who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, Moses finds his wife Zipporah at a well. And I think that, that maybe this is worth noting because I wonder if John the author may have had these accounts in mind when he tells the story of the Samaritan woman encountering Jesus at a well. John, the author of the book, is writing down these things he's experiencing with Jesus, likely in some kind of chronological order, but he's also connecting what he's writing down with the things that came before it and with the things that come after it. And he's weaving all these different stories and encounters together to show this grand picture of who Jesus is, of the kingdom of heaven. And all these stories are working, working together with the ones that came before it and with the ones that come after it. And in chapter three, in the chapter right before our passage, we read about John the Baptist. And we learn that, that Jesus is growing in fame and crowds are following him. All sorts of people are gathering to learn and to be healed and to be baptized by Jesus and his disciples. And at the same time, John the Baptist's crowds and his influence seems to be shrinking. See, there was one time where everyone was coming to John to be baptized. He was the bigwig, so to speak. He was the prophet that people would travel miles and miles to come and hear as he taught in the wilderness. And now the people were going to Jesus instead. And so a few of John's disciples come to him. They think maybe John is gonna be upset by this, that maybe John would feel poorly, would feel badly, that Jesus was taking center stage. And John the baptizer responds with these simple yet profound words. He says, I'm not the Christ but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. He, speaking of Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. And there's so much in those verses that we could unpack together, but I just wanna zero in on this one idea from the wedding metaphor. See, John the Baptist sees himself as the friend, as the best man, so to speak. He clearly states, he is not the groom. And this picture, this analogy of the wedding, you know, of a bride and groom, it's used a number of times throughout scripture to describe the relationship between Jesus and his people, between Jesus and his church. And John recognizes he's not the Christ. He's not the groom. His job is to prepare, to get everything ready for the bridegroom to connect with the bride. And then right after these kind of statements from John the Baptist, we find this encounter with the woman at the well. And so I wonder if it's possible that what John the author is telling us is that this interaction with the Samaritan woman at the start of Jesus' ministry is him calling his disciples from every tribe and tongue, every nation on the earth who would not only constitute his followers, but who would become his bride, the bride of Christ, starting with this conversation with the woman at the well. It's beautiful. And maybe a subplot, a sub-theme to the text that we're exploring today. Let's jump into verse four. Speaking of Jesus, it says, now he had to go through Samaria. Okay, pause. 
he had to go through Samaria. We read this in, in we read this from a 21st century context and we easily just breeze past it as in, oh, he had to pass through New Westminster. Like it's a footnote in the story of a city that was on the way to his destination. But that's not actually what this is. This is a pretty significant note that the author is making. Because the interesting thing is that, that he actually didn't have to go through Samaria. And so many Bible scholars have noted that a better translation of these words might be he was compelled to go through Samaria. Or that as a spirit-filled man, he was led to pass through Samaria. That there was this divine appointment waiting for him in his journey through Samaria. Because the most common way through Samaria for Jews was actually not to go through Samaria at all, but instead to go around it, even through Jordan instead of going through Samaria. Because even, even though passing through Samaria was the fastest route to get to Galilee by a long shot, Jews would never go that way because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other with this deep hatred and passion. And this went back some 500 years. The only time that a Jewish man would even speak the word Samaritan was as a curse word in a derogatory kind of way. One Jewish rabbi from the first century was recorded saying, let no man eat of the bread of a Samaritan, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats the flesh of swine. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, you know that eating the flesh of pigs was just about the greatest abomination that was out there. So the Jewish people, they would avoid Samaritans, avoid Samaria at all costs, even if it meant traveling many, many extra miles, two to three days added to the trip, oftentimes on foot in order to stay away from Samaria. Think about it like this, in local terms, if you're going to White Rock, instead of going on the Portman Bridge to take and, and taking exit onto 152nd Street through Surrey and then into White Rock, probably the fastest way to get there, if you hated Surrey, which some people do, you might go all the way to Langley and then take 200th across until you almost hit the border, then you come back down and into White Rock just to avoid passing through Surrey. I lived in Surrey for 10 years. It's a wonderful place, but just for the sake of visualizing the kind of workaround that was common practice for the Jews. So, so Jesus is passing through Samaria and he ends up at this well. Verse six says, Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. This scene opens with Jesus sitting at the well. It's the heat of the day, exhausted, tired from his journey. Which might be a point that's worth stating in itself, that, that Jesus himself experienced tiredness and exhaustion, that God in the flesh, God incarnate, has these very human experiences. And he sits down at the edge of the well, and, and it's the time of the day when everyone avoids being outside, scorching hot. Picture the, the heat wave that we experienced three or four weeks ago. I, I remember at that time going down to Rocky Point one day at noon. Wasn't that a mistake? It was one of those hot, hot days, and the park was pretty much empty like a ghost town, which is really rare for Rocky Point in the summer. There's one or two people sitting under a tree eating ice cream cones in the shade, but otherwise completely vacant. Everyone probably sitting in, in front of whatever fan they could find in a dark room, just trying to stay cool, I imagine. And, uh, and, and on those super hot days, the only time that I would attempt to go outside and actually, I'm doing this workout plan right now that requires me to go outside for exercise every day. But the only time that I would go outside for exercise during that heat wave was super early in the morning, like 5 a.m., or after dark at 9 or 10 p.m. Even then, it wasn't super cool, but at least it was doable and bearable. And this was the same for the Samaritan women that would go to the well to get water for the day. They would go super early in the morning, trying to avoid the heat of the sun. sun. Typically, groups of women who would, who would go to the well together with pots carried over their shoulders. 
and they'd get their water and they'd head back home before the heat got too out of control. But not this woman that Jesus encounters. We get the impression that, that she's this outcast, that she's been pushed to the margins of society. None of the other women in town want to associate with her. And we're gonna learn why in a moment, but, but in order to avoid these social stigmas and the pain of being with the other women, she comes to the well in the heat of the day so she can get her water that she needs and then go home without interacting with anybody else, without being constantly reminded how much of an outcast or a morally wretched person she is. So she's doing what she does probably every day. She's going to the well to fill her pots with water and then comes Jesus a Jewish man sitting at the well. Look at verse seven. He says to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman replies to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John, the author, adds these editorial notes. He says, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And we touched on this already, that Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. And so with that in mind, it's understandable why, why she would find this request quite shocking for that fact alone. How can you ask me for a drink? See, a Jewish rabbi had no business talking to a Samaritan, but then not only that, but also because she's a woman. And sad as it is, women weren't treated with, with very much dignity or respect through that time in history. They were viewed as being much lower class than men. And so there were these barriers upon barriers between Jesus and this woman. Here's what, what a few first century rabbis taught about how men should engage with women. Let me read these to you. The first one is this. It says, he that talks much with womankind will bring evil upon himself. He neglects the study of the law and at last will bring Gehenna upon himself or bring hell or punishment upon himself. Wow. Another said this, one should not talk with a woman on the streets, not even his own wife, and certainly not with someone else's wife because of the gossip of men. It is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. Some religious men were also known to pray like this, oh Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a sinner or a tax collector or a Gentile or a woman. And so this Samaritan woman would have likely expected Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, to ignore her to pretend that she didn't even exist, or, or if he did acknowledge her, that, that maybe she would expect him to look at her with lustful eyes, like the other men in her life had done, treating her as a sexual object, wondering what he could take from her, but that's not what she gets from Jesus. He breaks through these thick barriers, gender barriers, racial barriers, social barriers, and, and he throws out these horrific cultural norms. He throws them on their head, and he bestows on this woman this incredible dignity with the simple words, will you give me a drink? He'll, he'll put his hands and he'll put his mouth on the same cup that she, a Samaritan woman, is drinking from. Will you give me a drink? And by those words, she is shocked. She's caught off guard. Maybe for the first time in her life, though, she feels really special and seen and human. We see all throughout the gospel accounts that Jesus butts up against these societal norms and he treats women as fully human, as full partners in the gospel. He invites women to be his disciples. Jesus knowingly overcomes the customs and the cultural faux pas as he invites women to follow him, to learn under him, to sit at his feet alongside the men, to be in community and to participate in his kingdom ministry. It was revolutionary and absolutely liberating for women. And so he breaks through these cultural, racial, sexist barriers and engages this woman. And then he uses the conversation about water to point to a much greater thirst that the woman has. Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he'd give you living water. 
Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where will you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did all his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks the water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's like Jesus is saying to her, I've got something for you that's as basic and necessary to your soul as this water is to your body. At first, she thinks that Jesus is, is talking about a different water source that he knows about, another place where she can get water, and she's confused. Where are you going to get this water from? I've lived here all my life. I don't know where this water is that you're speaking of. But he seems to say that the water that he gives will prevent her from needing to come back to this well at all. She won't need to come back to top up her water jars. And so she says, I'm in. Where can I find this living water? Please, she says, I'm so tired from these long, hot trips to the well in the heat of the day. Where can I get this water? And in that moment, Jesus points to a thirst that goes so much deeper than her thirst for water, for H2O. He points to a deep soul satisfaction, contentment that doesn't depend on what's happening outside of us or of her, but that comes from a deep well within. And according to Jesus, He's the only one that can give that living water. He's the only one that has that living water on offer. And then this is the part of the story where I think Jesus makes things a little bit awkward. See, the woman has just asked for the, the, the perfect question, where do I get this living water? And to any of us who've done personal evangelism, who shared our faith with friends or neighbors or even strangers out on the street, this is the question we dream of people asking. She just, she just sets Jesus up for a slam dunk. She asks the ultimate question straight out of the textbook. And I'm thinking, Jesus, take the win. Tell her who you are. Tell her how she can be saved. Pray with her. Close the deal. The woman wants your living water. But Jesus takes a different approach, kind of a strange approach, in my opinion. He, he asks her to go and get her husband allegedly already knowing that she has this rocky past, that she's had multiple husbands and that the man she's living with now is not her husband. Yet he goes there and he asks her to, to go and get her husband. Why? Seems a little disconnected from the motivational kind of living water spiel that he was giving just moments before. Go call your husband and come here, he says. Well, I think there's two main reasons that Jesus moves the conversation in this direction. The first is this, if, if Jesus hadn't brought up her past, if he hadn't addressed her sin and her shortcomings, think about this, if Jesus had just skipped to the end and revealed himself as the Messiah, the woman would have likely gone away and from that moment on, she would have wondered to herself, if he knew about this part of my life, would he still love me? Would he still have called me his own if he knew that, that my promiscuous life, if he knew that I've been married five times, that, that I'm living with a guy who's not my husband, that I'm caught in adultery, would Jesus still respond to me with that same grace and kindness if he knew? And I think many of us have these same questions in our lives. There's things that maybe other people don't know about and we wonder if people knew this part of my life, if they knew what was going on in my heart or in my mind, or that I'm looking at pornography, or that my marriage is falling apart, or that I'm in this deep, deep depression, if people knew, or, or that I'm obsessed with this or with that, whatever it is, if, if my Christian friends knew, would they still, or, or if Jesus knew, would he still love me? And so, and so maybe we distance ourselves from community, like the woman at the well who's coming to get the water in the heat of the day in order to, in, in order to avoid community, or maybe we put on a face, we might even confess our sins vaguely to others. One author called it a faux confession, like faux leather, where you say enough just to come across as vulnerable, 
but you leave out critical details when you confess your sins to, that that will actually bring about freedom if you just expose the whole truth. But when the woman is fully undone before Jesus, she has nothing left to hide. And as the story goes on, we can see that this great joy bubbles up inside of her as she's fully, honestly herself before Jesus. In addressing this woman's past, Jesus is saying, I see you. I know you, the real you, not the you you're trying to project to others, the imperfect you. In all of your blemishes and all of your scars, yet I still see you as one worthy of love and mercy. See, in this interaction with the woman, Jesus still confronts her sin. He calls it out and he points to a better way, but he does it gently with, with great kindness. And he does it for her good. He does it so she'll know that the, even her greatest failures, even her greatest regrets won't separate her from the love of Christ that the long-awaited Messiah, the savior of the world, reveals himself to her. He chose her, he pursued her. The second reason I think Jesus moves the conversation towards her husband or her lack of husband is because he's pointing to the very thing she's been looking to in order to quench her thirst. She has this deep soul craving that she's trying to quench a thirst for something more, a deep desire for fulfillment. And she's gone through husband after husband, just trying to find what she's looking for. And she's left heartbroken and lonely and thirsty with seemingly this unquenchable thirst. I don't think most of us even recognize our, our soul thirst for what it is. Let me, let me ask you this. What do you want more than anything else? What would make you truly happy right now in this moment, at this time in your life? If you grew up in church, maybe you, you jump to the Sunday school answer and you say, well, Jesus. And, and if that's what you say, that's good. But is that really what you believe will satisfy your deepest longings? What are you thirsting for? For some, it's a thirst for power or for romance or for wealth or prestige, popularity. Or, or maybe these are more basic thirsts. Maybe, maybe it's to own a home or to get the job or to lose the weight, to pay off debt. Not bad things in themselves, maybe even... In, Good things, healthy things. But we, we, we think that the reason we rem are remaining unfulfilled is because we simply haven't been able to achieve our goals just yet. But once I look like him, or I look like her, or I buy the car, or I get more followers, maybe right now it's as simple as believing that once this pandemic is finally over and things are back to normal, then I'll feel this joy and fulfillment. Or maybe you're just holding on to a dead-end job, waiting till you turn 65 so you can retire, thinking that's finally when you'll be fulfilled, sipping on a margarita, lying by a pool in Hawaii. And, and honestly, I think that that will feel pretty good for a while. But it won't last, because although it's good, it doesn't have the power to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And so many people will end up almost their entire lives without admitting the depth of their spiritual thirst. Here's the thing, that as, as long as you think there's a pretty good chance of achieving some of your dreams, as long as you think that you still have a shot at success, you experience the inner emptiness as drive and your anxiety as this hope that one day you'll get there, that one day you'll be happy. And so you continue to remain almost oblivious to how deep your thirst actually goes. And then those who actually do reach or exceed their wildest dreams are often shocked to discover that these longed for circumstances actually don't satisfy. And sometimes achieving them even enhances the inner emptiness because yet again, the peak wasn't as good as you imagined. And you're left in the wake of empty promises of fulfillment and this looming question, was it all even worth it? Everyone's living for something, but Jesus is arguing, if he is not the thing, it will fail you. And not only that, but it will enslave you. 
Let me share a modern expression of what Jesus is saying in this text. I, I wanna read an excerpt from a speech given by David Foster Wallace, a best-selling author. Maybe you've heard of him. Someone who arrived at the very top of his industry, a household name. And this was from a, a commencement speech that he made at Kenyon College. He said this, he said, everybody worships. The only choice that we have is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you attach real meaning to in life, then you will, you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need even more power over others to numb you from your own fears. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the, the insidious thing about the forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are the default settings. In other words, most of the time you don't even recognize them. Wallace wasn't a religious person and he certainly never claimed to be a Christian, but he makes this really clear point that everyone is worshiping something. Everyone trusts in something for their salvation. Jesus says the only answer, the only thing that will truly and eternally quench our thirst is living water. Living water, it's the most important phrase in this whole passage and it has actual roots in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. What's a cistern? Well, in ancient times, these were wood or stone reservoirs that would be used to hold water. Maybe think like a giant water bottle. And cisterns, could, they could be helpful for keeping a water supply, but there was no comparison between water that was kept in a cistern and water from a stream from a living body of water. Have you ever left water in a water bottle for too long? <laughs> Maybe it was in your gym bag or in the trunk of your car and after the water's been sitting there for days or weeks or heaven forbid months, have you ever taken a drink of it? It has this horrible aftertaste. And this is kind of this stale flavor. And, and if you're really thirsty, if you have no other options, although it tastes horrible, you might actually drink it kind of out of necessity but there's no comparison to fresh, clean, cold, running water on a hot day. And this verse is saying, not only are the cisterns holding stale water instead of fresh living water, but they're cracks in the cisterns. They're, these are broken water jars and there's this slow leak and it can't hold the water you've placed in it or, or not for long anyways. The woman at the well is, is trying to find relief for her thirst by marrying the right guy or engaging in the right romantic relationship. She's trying to quench her thirst by, by, by finding the love, by drinking this, from this broken cistern, but she never quite finds what she's looking for. And she's lived in this constant state of thirst. Jesus was giving her this opportunity to trade her broken cisterns for a deep well of living water that could only be found in him, a contentment, a peace that regardless of whatever happens out there, whatever circumstances she would walk through, Jesus was saying, your thirst can be fulfilled in me. And my question for us today is, is where have we turned to broken cisterns instead of embracing the living water that Jesus has on offer? I know that I do this all the time. You know, I, I know the living water. I've drank from his well. I've experienced the fulfillment and the peace that is only found in him. And yet, I wander. 
I turn to broken cisterns. I look for fulfillment in things that are unable to fill me. And here's the thing, these cisterns aren't even necessarily bad things. Sometimes they're really good things like, like friendships or work or family or marriage or home. Uh, the, the problem becomes when we make these things the ultimate. Like Foster said in his speech, that the problem becomes when we worship these things, when we make these things the object of our affections, because they're incapable of quenching our thirst. They will never fill us, not because they're bad, but because they simply cannot quench our deep soul thirst. They're not fulfilling enough. They're cracked in broken cisterns. They've been elevated to a place that, that's so beyond where they rightfully fit. They've tried to take the place that only Jesus himself can fill. Sometimes a broken cistern in my life can even be church ministry. I can elevate preaching or meeting with people or casting a compelling vision to an unhealthy place in my heart where these things can be elevated to, to ultimate, even above Jesus himself. They're broken cisterns. And if I think that I'm gonna find fulfillment when our church grows or when enough people get saved or when I start teaching or communicating at a certain level, I'm just gonna get caught up in this rat race. It's a broken cistern. Anything that becomes the object of our worship, that captivates our imaginations, the affections of our heart, other than Jesus, will, in the words of David Foster Wallace, will eat you alive. So I want to encourage you today to return to the well, to return to Jesus. What might be a broken cistern in your life? Where might you be trying to find fulfillment? And, and if you're honest, you know it can't give you the kind of fulfillment that you're seeking. The woman at the well, she, she experiences Jesus. She experiences this living water he has on offer. And it absolutely revolutionizes everything in her life. At the end of chapter four, we see that she goes around telling everyone in town about this Messiah that she met, about the one who told her everything she ever did. Remember this, remember earlier in the story, she seems to just want to avoid all social interactions with other people. She, she, she goes to the well in the heat of the day rather than going to get water with the other women, just to avoid social interactions and stigmas that have been placed upon her. But in the close of the story, she's the lead evangelist to the Samaritan people. She's shouting from the rooftops, come and meet the this Jesus, what changed? Well, she encountered the living water, the person of Jesus. She found true fulfillment in, in, in a relationship with the God of the universe who loved her enough to break through all sorts of barriers and divides, to come to a well in the heat of the day, in Samaria of all places, so that she could know God and that she could find fulfillment in the intimacy that she was seeking that couldn't be found in any human relationships, but that could be found in him alone. This text reminds us that the only thing that will fill us is a relationship with the living God. Only Jesus can quench the deep soul thirst that we all experience. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, again, we're just thankful for this story and for this great encounter that the woman at the well has with you, our Lord and our Savior. And I pray that the things that I've shared today that are from your heart, that they would sink in deep soil, that you would help us to identify the broken cisterns in our lives. Put those things into the minds of your people. We wanna be worshipers of Jesus alone. We wanna find our, our, the, the quenching of our thirst from you. So lead us, so guide us, so convict us, Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray, amen, amen.